Uh, our lesson today is about a gentleman that I have utmost respect for, a gentleman that's really moved me in my life as I've prepared for this, a gentleman named John Huss. Last week we talked about John Wycliffe, and John Wycliffe was a British, an Englishman. He was a, a, a reformer of sorts, an early pre-reformer in the English church. He was someone who was an Oxford don. He headed up the Balliol uh, College there at Oxford University. And, and because Wycliffe was so concerned about Scripture, Wycliffe was so concerned about morality and ethics and sin that was through, just so pervasive in the church, um, Wycliffe spoke out against those things. And Wycliffe spoke out against church doctrine that seemed contrary to Scripture. And Wycliffe uh, went about and, and had his students work with him to translate the scripture into the common English language. And Wycliffe preached sermons in English at a time when everyone else did it in Latin because he thought the common people ought to understand what was going on. The common people ought to have access to scripture. And in the late 1300s, this was unheard of. Wycliffe got kicked out of Oxford for these things and la lived his last few years in obscurity relatively and he died. But he did not die in vain. His life was not in vain. He influenced ultimately us. He influenced the world. He influenced a gentleman named John Huss, who is the man we're going to talk about this morning. John Huss was born December 6, 1371, uh, at a time where uh, Wycliffe's got maybe 13 more years left to live. John Huss is born in a small bohemian town called Husenek, and that's where he gets his last name Huss from, H-U-S, or maybe it's pronounced Husenek, or maybe his last name is pronounced Hughes. I don't know. I'm from Lubbock. <clears throat> but he was born December 16th, or December 6, 1371, in Husenek, which is in Bohemia. That's down near Austria and Germany, uh, near the Bavarian Alps. It's a gorgeous part of the world if you ever get a chance to go. And the community is still there. It's a little village that's still there that celebrates him each year, even today. Um, uh, if we figure out where it is, if this is Europe, that's the Czech Republic. When I was growing up, it's called Czechoslovakia, um, but it's the Czech Republic now. And in the Czech Republic itself, it, right down here in this little corner, just a little bit north of Austria, and uh, in that little, that's Passau, Germany, right there at that tip, and right up there is where he was from. And he was born into a poverty family. They didn't have much money. Um, they're in a small village. The village wasn't nearly this pretty back then. Um, uh, it was a small village. His dad died at an early age, and this was a man whose uh, life was framed early in life by his mother. His mother was a godly woman. She loved God. She prayed for him incessantly. It's one of his earliest memories, is my mother prayed for me all the time. His mother not only prayed for him, but she wanted more for him in life. She told him that he'd been set out apart for God. And this is one of his earliest memories. He had been told from an early age on, you've been set out for God. Now, parents, grandparents, children who want to be parents, Take note of this for just a moment. I don't have it in the points for home, but take note of it. This is a boy whose mother prayed for him every day and told him his life had been set apart for God. 
and to find what God wanted in his life. There was no education to be found there. So what his mother would do, the way you got educated back then, they didn't have public schools, is uh, uh, the, the nearby, the priests and, and the monasteries and the monks, those were the people who had education by and large. The university systems were just starting up, so when you got to be old enough, you could go to a university. But, but very few had the money and the wherewithal and the training, because very few ever learned to read or write. That took something at a younger age. His mother would bake bread and take it to the local priests and give it to the priests in return for the priests to teach her son how to read and write. And when I say take it to the local priests, the local priests were at the church. The church was a two-hour round trip from where they lived. It was in another village. And so they would have to go to this village that was a good hour plus away, a two-hour round trip. And the family did that for church regularly. The mom did that for her son every day to go to school. That's a pretty deep commitment from a parent. That's a, a, a pretty deep involvement in a child's life. And it was something that impressed John Huss as a child very much. John was blown away by the uh, church. <clears throat> John decided he wanted to be a priest. You know why? Because John lived in a little hole-in-the-wall mud town, but the priest had these really cool houses. I mean, they had the spectacular houses. They had stables with wonderful horses. The priest had servants. The priest wore the best clothes. The priest got to go hunting all the time and had the best hunting dogs. Now, this also gives you a little picture of how the church was at the time and what was going on. When the priests have the servants instead of the priests serving the congregants. Um, but to a young boy, it was, gee, I've been set apart for God. That means I get to grow up and be one of these guys. I'm going to have my own horses, my own stable, my own wonderful house. And he was really into it, young John Huss. He grew up, he did well with the, 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 the classes that he got from the clergy. And at the age of about 16 or so, he went to the University of Prague. Now, the University of Prague had been around for almost 50 years at this point in time. It's still around. Uh, he didn't have the money to go, but he got in anyway, and he went. And he supported himself by singing on the street. <clears throat> I don't really think that's him, because... He had longer hair. But he was a, he'd sing on the streets and he'd play chess for money. And that's how he put himself through school. He put himself through school and he did very well in school. And he got his bachelor's degree in philosophy. And after he got his bachelor's degree in philosophy, he stuck around for another year and he got a bachelor's degree in uh, theology. Then he stuck around two more years, and he finally graduates with a third degree. He gets his master's degree in philosophy. When he gets his master's degree in philosophy, Huss gets to start teaching at the university. And he's actually a, a, a professor there. And it's real interesting. Do you know what he starts using for his textbooks? Writings of Wycliffe. 
Because you see, the, the Bohemians, that, that part of the world was known as Bohemia at the time, the kingdom of Bohemia, um, the, the, higher, the, the nobility of Bohemia has intermarried with the... Wait, Bohemia would be here for y'all. Sorry. Has intermarried with the, Bohem, with the, the nobility of England. So there's a lot of back and forth going on between those two countries. A lot of students at the University of Prague that had been students at Oxford. And so you, God's hands in all of this, and, and these students bring down the teachings of Wycliffe, and Wycliffe's teachings are, are introduced to Huss, and Huss goes ape over him. He just loves it. And Huss starts using them and teaching them to his university students and using the, the, the teachings and the writings of Wycliffe with his students. Huss continues to teach, and in 1402 or 03, I don't know, when Huss is about 30 years old, an opening, 31 years old, comes up to preach at Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. Now, we've got to pause for a minute, and I've got to tell you about Bethlehem Chapel. This is a picture of it on the left. That's one of the interior views on your right. Um, you can go to Prague and you can see it. What you're seeing when you go is not the original chapel itself because that got destroyed a few hundred years ago, but it was so significant that the people of Prague took the original blueprints and plans of this chapel and rebuilt it exactly like it was the first time. And one of the walls was still the same, so it wasn't totally destroyed, I should say. Um, but it was built in 1391, about 12, 11, 12 years before Huss starts preaching there. It was built at a time where there are these majestic churches where all the priests are. But this Prague, this city, has been turned upside down by two men of God. One was an Augustinian monk named uh, uh, Conrad with a K, Waldhauser. Conrad Waldhauser came to uh, Prague and was impressed at how many people there were who were just living in despair on the streets. And so he started preaching to them. The people living in despair on the streets could not speak Latin. So he would speak to them in Bohemian, their native tongue. It, it had a huge effect. He had a, uh, Conrad had a, a young man who, who taught with him, who was following him around. Uh, Conrad mentored a fellow named John um, Milek. And John Milek uh, uh, took it a step further. John Milek not only would go out and preach to the street people, and preach to the prostitutes. But John Milek started taking every dime he could scrape together and buying houses that all of the street people could come into. Winters can be harsh in Prague, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. Um, and, and, and John would just bring all of these uh, outcasts in and he would preach to them. And there were a lot of people who were well-to-do who were very impressed with this, including two gentlemen who decided that a church or a chapel couldn't be a consecrated church, but a chapel needed to be built for this ministry. And so these two men went together, and they were both builders anyway, and they built this Bethlehem chapel. They named it Bethlehem after the, the, the idea that Herod had gone in and slaughtered the innocents when he was trying to kill Christ as an infant. And they said, this is dedicated to all of the innocents out there that are dying and dying spiritually. 
And these guys who built this chapel wrote into the charter a couple of rules. They wrote in, number one, whoever preaches in this chapel has to preach in the common tongue. They have to preach in Bohemian. Number two, this chapel is to be manned for two services every Sunday, two sermons every Sunday and every holiday, as well as the normal mass that could be given. And uh, uh, this is set up this way, and there were a couple of guys who continued to preach there, but uh, in 1402, after 11 years, uh, a pulpit position came open. And uh, um, the guys who had been preaching there had gotten into a lot of trouble. I'm going to skip this slide. Forget uh, what I was going to tell you about St. Peter's because of time. Wycliffe, at this point in time, has died, but his scriptures that he had translated into the common tongue were still out there. Now, the Bohemians had originally, as a church or as a people, been formed by missionaries that had come up from the Eastern Orthodox Church, not from the Roman Church. And so these missionaries had come up and spoken in the Bohemian tongue and had taken the Greek scriptures and translated them into Bohemian. But it was, it was hundreds of years old. So the, the, the Bohemians had old scriptures in their tongue, but not many copies, and it was quite out of date. Wycliffe had put into Huss's mind and others the idea of having scriptures in everybody's tongue that they could actually read. Now, at this point in time, we're 1402, Huss is 31 years old. Who is 31 or over? Okay. <clears throat> Go back in your brain. Some of you way back in your brain. 31. At the age of 31, Huss is Mr. Success. I mean, think about it. Here's this guy from this backwater town whose mom and dad are uneducated. His daddy dies at an early age. His mama bakes bread and walks him an hour every day to get to a village where he can learn. He manages to get not only through that learning, but he manages to get into school. His mama's praying for him every day. This kid from no origin in school does well. He graduates with three degrees. He gets named the university professor. I haven't told you this, but before this point in time, he's not only been named university professor, he becomes the dean of the philosophy department. Not only does he become the dean of the philosophy department, he becomes the chaplain or the rector for the whole university. And then there's this preaching spot that opens in the Bethlehem Chapel, which, by the way, would hold about a thousand people seated. Maybe three times the size of where we are in this chapel. No mic either. PowerPoint was really dismal. <laughs> and of the three people being considered for that job, it goes to young 31-year-old John Huss. And the first thing he does is he starts redecorating the church, the chapel. He takes the walls, and all the way down these big old walls, he has in huge writing, Scripture. It's the wallpaper he puts up there. He has put on the walls Scripture so the people can read it because the people don't have access to Bibles. Uh, and, and, and the people are coming. Oh, they're coming. He takes the, 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 the pulpit at Bethlehem Chapel, which also was weird because any church that you saw built at the time, churches at the time were built, um, 
I need to be able to draw. They were typically built like uh, in a cross shape, okay? And you'd come in through the back, and you'd have little altars set up, and usually scenes painted on the wall that are, are progress you down toward the altar, which is in the middle. Typically, the, the wings would go out on the side in the cross shape, and you'd have a big sensor or, or an incense burner that would hang down, and it could swing from side to side like this without clubbing everybody in the head who's sitting out there. And then behind it is the altar where you'll have the crucifix, and, and the idea being that you enter from the back, but you work your way up to Christ. It's usually somewhere in the middle is where they might have a little uh, platform uh, pulpit for someone to read or preach, or sometimes up in this area, but it was always very small compared to the altar itself. Not so in the Bethlehem Chapel. In the Bethlehem Chapel, the pulpit was just as prominent as the altar. The two went hand in hand. This was to be a chapel for proclaiming the Word of God by preaching. And uh, it was built that way. And the, the guys who designed it, the guys who paid for it, are the ones who built it. So John Huss takes over at the Bethlehem Chapel. And when he takes over, he starts preaching. And he's preaching the Word of God. He's preaching the Word of God so clearly and so powerfully that people are amazed. And when he preached, he didn't just stand up and read something. He spoke to people. He'd look them in the eye and he'd talk to them. And everybody's coming. It's standing room only. Queen Sophia comes. He's got nobility and he's got prostitutes. And he treats them all the same. The king of Bohemia could be sitting in his pulpit, I mean in, in his seat, and a, a beggar man sitting uh, uh, in a seat three rows behind, and, and Huss will treat him the same. He'll call them men and brethren. He'll call them beloved. He'll call the women, women of the church, whether they're the queen or, or anyone else. He treats them all the same. And his message is the same. He says, sin is sin. Whether it's committed by the king, whether it's committed by the pope, or whether it's committed by a prostitute, it doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And people are sinners. And people are in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And I mean, he's laying it out there. The queen takes him on as her personal confessor. Well, you know what happens then. He gets all the palace gossip, right? He knows what's going on with all the nobility. And you know what he does? He preaches on it. <laughs> he goes out on the streets. He finds out what's going on in the streets. And he preaches on it. He's everywhere and he's taking practical examples and he's delivering the word of God on it. And when he preaches, he preaches using what we today call exegesis. He preaches from Scripture. He'll read the Scripture. He'll have it plastered on the wall. I told you the PowerPoint was tough. He'll have it plastered on the wall, and he'll read it, and he'll deliver it, and he'll go through passage by passage by passage. Now, he got some flack for this. He got told he shouldn't be doing that. He got told this isn't right. There was a lot of jealousy from all the other priests because everybody wants to go to Bethlehem Chapel. Some people told him to be quiet. At one point, he gets told he's not allowed to preach anymore, but he keeps preaching. Here was his response. Some would say, you, Huss, always do not want to subject yourself to your superior. You disobey your elders. You disobey the archbishop. Huss says, and I answer, I want to be the donkey of Balaam. I resist, the, y'all remember the donkey of Balaam? Yeah. 
okay, that's the donkey that's like, won't go. And the guy says, go, go, go. Balaam's kicking him and pulling him. And the donkey won't go because the donkey sees the angel of God in the way with the big sword. And the donkey saves Balaam's life. He says, I want to be the donkey of Balaam. I resist their strength as the legs of the stubborn donkey and will not obey them because the angel of the Lord is obstructing the way. And so he just keeps right on going. And he says, now priests, the reason y'all don't know a lot of this, the reason we've got to have these scriptures on the wall is because the priests are guilty. They haven't been preaching the scriptures. You need to preach the scriptures. He says, that's not all the priests are guilty of. On a sermon that he was preaching on John 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. Huss said, yet the shepherds of today don't know all our sheep. We only know the ones that are given a lot of money. You know, the king comes in, the queen comes in, the big giver comes in. We're going to take time to know those people. Everybody else, eh, we're glad you're here. Meet someone around you. He says, that's not right. Now, he's preaching in a church of a thousand, and he's practicing what he preaches. He knows them all by name. That's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. He would preach that the Pope is under Scripture. That was a different thought at the time. At the time, the church doctrine was the Pope is equivalent to Scripture. Neither one really trumps the other one. He said, no. Scripture's on top. Pope's below it. Pope is not above Scripture. He preached to the priests. He got called in for a while. The archbishop said, hey, why don't you be the preacher to the preachers? And so he would do that. And he would say the priest should be a moral beacon for the people. At the time, the view of many priests was, hey, uh, we're sinners. Everybody's a sinner. So big deal. And, and Huss just goes after him. Huss says, how dare you go get drunk? at the tavern while your people are trying to get into church for the mass you show up late to deliver mass and and you're so fuzzy tongued from what you've already been drinking you have trouble doing it preachers yes we're all sinners but preachers should be moral beacons they should not be just all the rest um, skip that one now, the preachers don't get mad, or priests get mad at this. Priests don't like it. So they complain to the king. King says, well, when he was preaching against us, y'all just sat back and laughed while we had to endure it. Now he's preaching against you. Endure it. Your turn. Huss was writing as well. Huss got sent over to check out a miracle where there was a church that supposedly had been destroyed and in the process of it being destroyed, uh, some of the wafers for communion were read. And these two guys had kind of cornered the market claiming that these are miraculous and they truly have the blood of Christ in them. And uh, so everybody was paying all the money to come see him and you'd have to pay to come see him and touch him and maybe you'd get a miracle. So Huss goes and Huss writes this steaming book out of it. Winds up, uh, the archbishop after reading Huss's book says, okay, I'm excommunicating anyone who goes and pays money to these charlatans. You're not allowed to do it. It's a fraud. And Huss revealed it that way. And then Huss would wrote this book and he said, please, 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 people. Don't go out there seeking the miracle in your life and feeding ecclesiastical greed, the greed of the preachers. 
or the, the priest. He says, what you need to be doing is spending your time searching God's Word and understanding where Christ is in the Word and letting that apply to your life. Very different. Very different. Now, um, I, I, we've got to know at this point in time, the, the, the papistry, the, the popes, there's a big schism in the Catholic Church right now on which pope. We're going to follow the pope. We talked about this some last week. The pope that's now in Avignon, France, or are we going to follow the pope in Rome? You got two different popes going on. You got Benedict the 13th and you got Gregory the 12th. And both of them kind of came to office making an agreement that if they both came to office, they'd both resign at the same time so the church could get one pope and heal the schism. But when they both got to office, uh, one of them backed out of the deal, and then the other one started thinking, yeah, I'm backing out too, and the schism just kept going, and finally it got to a point where they're both there and uh, nothing's getting done. Um, the, the, the countries have divided up. Some follow one, some follow the other. The big fuss is going on. And uh, so uh, at Pisa in 1409, the church gets together and just deposes them both. Says enough of this. If y'all won't quit, we'll just fire you both. And the popes get fired. Foreign concept to us today as we think through the Catholic Church, but at the time it worked. Um, then what the, the cardinals do is they elect a new pope, Alexander V. Of course, Benedict the 13th and Gregory the 12th are not going quietly in the night. They both think they're popes. So instead of healing the schism by firing those two and appointing a new one, guess what they've done? Now we got a three-way schism with three guys claiming to be pope. So you got the different guys claiming to be pope. Alexander V is trying to appease all of his archbishops and he knows about all of this fuss going on with Huss. So he issues a bull to try and get Huss to shut up because the priests aren't happy with Huss and what he's doing. The bull says, you're not allowed to teach Wycliffe anymore. No one's allowed to reference Wycliffe. In fact, you need to burn all of his books. And oh, by the way, if you're not in an official church, no more preaching and giving them the mass, which means Bethlehem Chapel shut down. So what does uh, John do? Gets up in the pulpit and starts preaching. In the things which pertain to salvation, he says God is to be, to be obeyed rather than man. And he ignores the bull. And by the way, his congregation gives him a standing ovation for this line and his willingness to, to stand up against the pope. If maybe he's just like one-third pope, but he's still a pope. So um, uh, at this point in time now, the pope uh, uh, dies, most likely poisoned by the fellow who, this is Pope Alexander, who follows him, John the 23rd. Now you're thinking, wait, there's a Pope John the 23rd in the 20th century. Yes, you're correct. The Catholic Church has two Pope John the 23rds. This one ultimately doesn't count because the church deemed he was an anti-pope. Okay? So... Well, you got Christ and the Antichrist. They say you got the popes and the antipopes. He's called an antipope, okay? So, John the 23rd is going to try and heal all of this stuff, and he calls a big conference together with the king of uh, Germany, King Sigismund, in Constance, Germany, a beautiful town near Baden, if you ever have a chance to go. 
Now, Emperor Sigismund, or King Sigismund at the time of Germany, he's not yet Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, that comes later, says, yes, I want to come to this, and what we're going to do at this is we're going to solve this Catholic Church schism, we're going to get the unity that Jesus prayed for, we're going to fix this stuff. So come on in, Pope John XXIII, let's get this thing done, and oh, as part of this, let's take care of that trouble we're having in Bohemia. That Huss fella. So Huss... Come on, and uh, let's, let's deal with this. Well, Huss says, you know, historically I haven't left because uh, uh, I've been excommunicated. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get tried for heresy. I don't really want to come. So Guzman says, I ensure you passage. I will protect you. No harm will come to you. If you get tried, that's fine. If you get found guilty, that's fine. I'll send you back to Prague and let you deal with the people there. So uh, with that promise and assurance, oh, and... The Pope's not far from it. The Pope says, Huss, and puts out in a big decree for everyone to see, if Huss kills my brother, I will still ensure his safety home. So Huss uh, uh, is accompanied with three bodyguards and goes to um, Constance, Germany, where he's immediately arrested and thrown into the dungeon. Um, the Pope wasn't feeling too... Our Pope was probably kind of pumped about it at first, but it didn't take long before Sigismund had the Pope arrested and thrown in the same dungeon too, until the Pope agreed to resign. Uh, they bring uh, Huss to trial. They say, Huss, you're a heretic. You have been teaching Wycliffe. You have been preaching when you've been told not to preach. You've been excommunicated and you've still continued. And Huss says, well, look, anything that I've preached, I've preached because I think it's what God's Word says. They said, well, that's not the point. The point is it's heresy. You need to recant or we will kill you. Huss says, I will gladly recant anything you show me is contrary to the Bible. But I cannot in good conscience recant anything that's consistent with the Word of God. They said, are you trying to make a mockery of this entire council? We have a whole council of people here voting against you, telling you you're wrong. Huss says, then find the lowest person in the council and let them show me by the Bible where I'm wrong and I'll change what I'm doing. Well, this doesn't work well for him. They burn him at the stake. I mean, they burn him alive. The last thing he says is he's... Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. The Kyrie eleis, he starts saying, singing it actually. And he's, he's killed. July 6th, which today still is a public holiday in Czech, Czech Republic in honor of John Huss. If you go to Prague, you will find in the old market square a huge towering statue of John Huss. Um, in 1990, when Pope John Paul went to Prague and visited, uh, he made a stirring speech about the integrity of John Huss and what a, an incredible man of the church John Huss was. Didn't said said you, I'm not saying I endorse all his theology, but I am telling you this was an incredible man. Now. I want to talk about points for home for a minute because this is really where the, the rubber meets the road on this lesson. 
When Huss was walking around and teaching at the universities and, and when he was on his way up before this drop off the cliff, when he was on his way up and God seemed to be smiling at him and the world seemed to be smiling at him and the crowds adored him, one of the things his fellow priests and students and teachers were arguing about was this issue. It's a big one. Did Christ wear sandals or walk barefoot? That was a stumper. Huss's response I loved. I don't care whether he came in barefoot or walked in sandals. I just care that he came to save me. And that's the way he would take things and put back the this, this, this stress on him. The success of his preaching was the fact that his life was a sermon before he preached it. He didn't get up there and say one thing and do another. He lived what he said. He was consistent with it. Another point I want to bring out here before we close this is the chain. See, we have Wycliffe who lives the life God calls him to live, who speaks out where God tells him to speak out, who is sincere and a devoted student of the Word. And connected to Wycliffe is Huss in this chain. And Huss takes Wycliffe, translated some of Wycliffe's writings into Bohemian, used some of Wycliffe's sermons as his own sermons, taught from Wycliffe's books, his textbooks. And what we're going to see next week is someone who was moved by Huss to make his own decisions about his faith and his walk and his, his role in the church. And that's a gentleman named Martin Luther. You may not have heard of Huss. You may not have heard of Wycliffe till class. I think we've all heard of Luther. But it's interesting to see how God's chain works because God's chain is in your life. You are a link in God's chain. You're a link from what's happened before you to what's coming after you. You're a link in your home. You're a link in your work. You're a link in this church. You influence people. People are different because you interact in their life with them. And that should drive all of us to wonder and awe at God. But it should also drive all of us to spend more time in the Word and more time devoted to making sure that we're a good link. And with that, these points for home. The church is the body of Christ. We're made up of imperfect people. Any of y'all perfect? Raise your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. About three of you. And the three that raised their hand, their spouse pulled it down really quick. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just because we're all sinners, though, doesn't mean sin should reign in the church. It doesn't mean we give free reign to it. It doesn't mean we cavalierly sit back and say, I'm a sinner. We don't sin so that grace may abound, by no means. Sin is a bad thing. It leads to bad things. It has evil consequences. We don't want sin. We don't embrace sin. We want to strive by God's power and strength for the righteousness that he has for us. We're all called to work together for the common good. We are. You know, you're the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. That's the place series that, that Lewis is talking about. That's the role we have. I think my role in this church, one of my roles is to stand up here and teach this class. If I didn't, 
I would have gotten more than four hours sleep last night. But this is an important thing to me. I think it's my role. Some of you help me prepare for this class, and I thank you. Some of you take what I do in this class and put it on the Internet, and I thank you. Some of you pray for me, I thank you. But everybody in here showed up today, and I thank you. Because I sit here and think, yeah, I'm glad I got those extra couple hours of work in on this lesson. There are people here who want to hear this, and maybe it's got something for them. That's just where I am. I don't know where you are, but you've got a role in this church. You've got a role. It may just be sitting out there and soaking things up right now because God wants to prepare you for something later. I don't know. But you've got a role in His body. Everybody does. And it's no less important than mine, or Lewis's, or Michelle's, or Gary's, and I can just go down the road. God's got this whole thing put together, and He's got a role for you. And I would urge you to commit to plugging in and making a difference in his body somehow. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise your name for the way you have worked in history. It's still every Sunday I get to speak up here. It leaves me just in awe at what you do. And Lord, we're only reading and studying about the people of note in history that made the history books. I know that there are millions of people that have quietly and silently gone through and made every bit as big of a difference. And I praise you for them, but mostly I praise you for you because you are the one who works in us to will and, and to work for your good pleasure. And, and, and it's such an honor to call you not just God, but Father and friend. Be with us this week. Move in us to make a difference in our world for you. Through Jesus we pray, amen.